Hello and welcome to the Shindig, a podcast about archaeology presented to you by the Red River Archaeology Group. I'm Dr. Tom Horn, your presenter, and I'm here with our ace producer, Luke Barry. Hello. Um, in the previous episode, we talked to Dr. Ryan K. McNutt about the Camp Lawton Archaeological Project. Um, we were looking really at the background into how that Confederate prisoner war camp came to be. And we just started talking about conditions at the, the camp in terms of food and drink at the end of episode one. And episode two, we look at that again and we're really beginning to look at the, the, the flip side of that. If you're malnourished, what the um, effect that will be on your body. So we're looking more at, at disease and, and death at the camp. And then we look at what happens in terms of the chronology of the site when the Union Army starts to threaten and the site has to be abandoned. And Ryan also then goes into the work that they're doing the project at the moment. Really interesting outreach, um, really interesting finds to do, particularly with the African-American enslaved community around about the camp. So we hope you really enjoy this episode. It was really fascinating to make. Yeah, it's an incredible, incredible interview. Um, we're so happy that we have it, and we hope that you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoyed recording it. So here it is, part two of the interview with Dr. Ryan K. McNaught. Okay, Ryan, um, so, you know, they could supplement uh, their their meals, um, as we discussed, by by buying it at hugely inflated prices um, from from the uh, the prison guards. Um, could they could they, for example, was there any rabbits or wildlife? What 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 was the sort of the, the sort of flora and fauna um, around them? Um, the flora and fauna is interesting. Um, again, remember these are immigrants. Um, people from northern states this is for many of them their first experience um of the wildlife and the flora and fauna of the south so sometimes it's difficult to kind of get out of what they're actually talking about uh, there's probably some hyperbole uh, there's references to mosquitoes the size of hummingbirds which they certainly at times seem to be that big but that's probably hyperbole uh, they talk about tarantulas that, interestingly enough, probably isn't because um, Georgia does have two relatively large species of spiders. Um, there is a fishing spider whose body is about three inches in size. Um, and we also have- That sounds ghastly. That sounds ghastly. Yes. I'm sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. There are also uh, Carolina, uh, there's wolf spiders. Um, and one of the species of those Carolina spider um its body gets up to about two inches in size um so 2.5 yeah yeah pretty big four five centimeters something like that i'm probably slightly off on the conversion it's probably bigger than that but we actually actually have a picture because those are still on site uh still on our social media there's a picture of one that we saw a few days ago that um it's probably about as big as my hand um and it certainly looks like a tarantula um there also were alligators present. Um, there's one mention from Ransom about POWs killing an alligator uh, at the lower end of the stream. He doesn't say if they ate it or not. Uh, it might be somewhat tough to skin, but I imagine if you're hungry enough, you probably found a way. And we still have those present on site. Uh, our current excavation site is on the north bank of the stream and it seems to be home to two resident gators uh, a fairly small one that's probably about four to five feet in length uh, that i'm calling gus 
And then another one that's probably something like eight to 12 feet in length uh, that I take it to call boots because it probably make a pretty nice pair of boots. Um, so yeah, there's lots of stuff like that present. Um, they also talk about basically eating rodents. There's a reference to them drowning out a gopher and then eating a gopher. Um, probably a pocket gopher. Um, I've talked to our zooarchaeologist and he's not quite sure what they might be referring to because there's some debate about kind of how early gophers show up in Georgia, but some kind of small uh, ground dwelling um, rodent or mammal they were eating. Um, there's also turtles. Um, we did find some pieces of turtle shell and turtle bone that might be from a preserved context that might indicate they were getting some turtles from the stream, which are probably relatively easy to catch if you're fast enough. And there is a reference from a POW of almost stepping on a snake when he's walking to the stream and talks about how somebody yells snake and then immediately two POWs pounce on it and beat it with sticks and then fix it to a tree and skin it. And he says it's something like six feet long, something like that, six foot long black snake. What species it is, is kind of tough to say. It could be an indigo snake, or it could just be a big water snake. Um, it's not clear if it was venomous or not. But we I just looked in horror at producer Luke there when uh, the idea of people <laughs> running up to the snake and beating it to death and then skinning it and eating it. I mean, but it, it kind of it gives you an impression of just how desperate people were. And, you know, I think that this idea that malnutrition is probably their number one thing that they're they're, they're concerned about over and above, you know, be, being being shot by by the camp guards. But but that 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 speaks to a bigger truth, isn't it? That that isn't it true that many or most casualties on both sides during the U.S. Civil War and, and many wars um, was due to disease and malnutrition and exposure to the elements. Um, is is that the correct picture? That that's a real killer. It's it's disease and malnutrition that are killing people. Yeah, disease, uh, malnutrition, um, malnutrition, and ex exposure as well, because we've got this winter coming in as well. We always get to remember this horrible winter yeah. is, is, is occurring. Exposure um, and psychological aspects as well. Uh, disease at Camp Lawton, it does seem to be better than in Andersonville. Um, they have, for one thing, they have access to fresh water. That certainly seems to help. But you still have these lingering issues of scurvy. Um, you also have issues of uh, gangrene and blood poisoning. You're living in a dirty environment. Um, and there are accounts at both Andersonville and um, Lawton of kind of recurring uh, issues with gangrene. Um, they have things where there's also smallpox epidemics that break out. Interestingly enough, the Confederacy does try to stop that by vaccinating uh, for smallpox, um, but the problem is, is the way that you vaccinated in the 19th century for smallpox was you cut a slit in the arm and you put the live smallpox virus in, which right. yeah. it works, but you're also cutting an arm open in an environment that is full of disease and bacteria, and that often led to blood poisoning and gangrene to such an extent that one of the conspiracy theories, interestingly enough, among the POWs, was that the vaccination campaign was really an attempt to try to kill as many of them as possible, uh, but they weren't actually being vaccinated, um, that they were intentionally being poisoned by the Confederate doctors. And doesn't, if, if they're prone to, so, to, to scurvy, doesn't scurvy 
stop wounds from healing and open up old wounds? Isn't that one of the particularly ghastly aspects of it? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, there are guys that are talking about the skin over their uh, knees bursting open um, just because lack of vitamin C um, intersecting uh, with you know, well, the immune system and, and you know skin resilience and development. Um, not that kind of doctor, but yeah, it's a, a host of ongoing problems that link directly to scurvy. And again, I mean, you know, you could get sweet potatoes to offset it. Um, you could, if there's a sutler's cabin, which is what we're looking for this spring, um, that was inside the stockade. It was run um, by a person appointed by the Confederate commandant, and they would bring in supplies and sell them to prisoners. But again, the problem of money. Most of these guys are what were known as salted cod. Some of them have been in the prison system since 61, 62. Their clothes are falling off. They Any money that they came in with that they managed to keep, they've already spent. There are some people um, that come in later that are fine. Um, there's a host of recently captured POWs coming in from places like Sherman's Army, um, Battles in North Carolina, that are still perfectly kitted out and they still have their pay bonuses that they got. So they seem to do much better at surviving because they've got money to spend. And interestingly enough, there is an operating postal, somewhat operating postal system uh, where we have letters from POWs that they're sending to their families back north asking them to send them money, um, you know, $5 in greenbacks or, you know, send me $20 if you can spare it. And they're then using that money in the system. And archaeological research supports this where the initial work inside the stockade found uh, quite a bit of coinage, uh, some foreign coinage too, uh, from Austria and from Buenos Aires. So there is stuff circulating inside the prison, but it does very much seem to be a case of your survivability is tied on how lucky you are to have money and how lucky you are to have people who are willing to send you money. And if you don't have that, yeah, disease, scurvy, um, and more what seems to be one of the killers as well that is tied to exposure is PTSD. Um, there are numerous accounts of essentially men just becoming, as they call it, maudlin, and just staring off in the distance, and they almost literally just waste away um they go down the stream and kind of like dig themselves into the earth and then they're found um, dead the next morning from exposure where it doesn't seem like it's intentional suicide but there are definitely tons of psychological aspects that are affecting survivability um and this is probably not necessarily ptsd coming from inside the camp, um, but ongoing PTSD from being exposed to what's really one of the first industrial uh, wars. I mean, there are horror stories of artillery and rifle fire and the effect that it has on men's men and bodies. Uh, there's one good account of a rebel Confederate artillery shell that lands in a caisson full of ammunition of a Union battery and the entire gun emplacement explodes and goes up. And it talk, the eyewitness talks about it just being a red mist with ribbons of flesh. And he's probably 40 or 50 meters away from it. But then a few seconds later, the body of one of the artillerymen 
who is in the blast lands next to him and his legs have been blown off his chest is open enough to see his heart inside of it his eyes are burned away his ears are gone um, he has what seemed like probably third degree burns over most of his body and he's still alive because he's begging the eyewitness to kill him and put it into it i mean i think that yeah i mean if you're talking about the horrors of war i mean and what these people have gone through even before they're in this horrendous pow system is and that's something i wouldn't have really i mean you sort of you consider it but it's just kind of like you know it's when we were discussing you know give give me the lead up to you know why this camp's being built ryan and it's quite easy and i think i did that guilty of it certainly was that you know i sort of glossed over that and you forget that these people have got you know huge issues with their with their mental health even if they were relatively healthy mentally beforehand and and does that come out in any of the letters as well um they talk about their struggles um they don't talk about it in their letters um there's very much this i'm okay you know send me stuff like they don't seem to want to put that in the home front and they don't talk about it on a personal level but they do talk about other pow's and they talk about uh for example men waking up screaming in the middle of the night um men that are just walking around mumbling to themselves and this is probably ptsd and it's probably some of the reasons why some of this is really impactful inside the stockade is because it seems like it's possible to kind of push it aside when you're in combat when you're moving when you're you know you have direction you have orders you're with a squad of men you have tasks there are things that are filling up your day but then you're suddenly inside a stockade and the only thing that marks out your days is getting rations and trying to stay alive and that probably intersects with one of the other big aspects that comes out of prison is prisoners keeping themselves busy with either trying to escape uh through tunnels or um, escape at other means there's definitely escape tunnels that were attempted at Camp Walton. None of them were successful. They were all found and filled in. Our craft work, uh, making items. Uh, one of my favorite pieces from Dr. Green, who's director before me, he did some excavations on one of these brick ovens. And inside that brick oven is a little uh, chess piece, a palm that's been carved out of burnt wood uh, for the black pieces. And it, it, presumably they use natural wood uh, for the white side but it's very much this idea of keeping yourself busy because if you don't have anything to occupy yourself you just all that PTSD all that trauma seems to just surge up and there's no psychological help for it um, there is some access to things like alcohol and tobacco but it's harder to get and both of those outside of prisoner context were used as treatments for kind of anxiety, combat fatigue, much in the same way that they were in World War II and in, in the war since. Um, it's probably part of the reason why Grant uh, smoked so heavily. Um, there's a quote from, famous quote from one of his aides that says that, you know, Grant was um, calm everywhere, but then Grant also smoked everywhere. So they're all when they can they're self-medicating and obviously making their health worse but yeah. you get in that cycle of you you feel bad and then you you self-medicate more and so any money they have they're 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 kind of making themselves feel worse but just to get you know 
get through that hour or that or that or that day but i mean and that's the thing there we think of this in the way you've described it so beautifully uh and you know this tragic situation is that you seem like they're there for months or years but they're 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 only in Camp Lofton between is it October tenth and November the twenty second, eighteen sixty four, and uh, why is that? You mentioned uh, General Sherman's as as I think you explain a wee bit about what what the march to the sea was and the panic that that happens even in as far south as Georgia and and obviously that this has a knock on effect to Camp Lawton and 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 what the prison the the, the prison commanders uh, decide to do. Yeah, uh, so Sherman has taken um, Atlanta. Um, everybody is up in the air about what he's going to actually do. Um, his Confederate opponent um, hightails out of Georgia, heading towards um, eventually Nashville, and he expects Sherman is going to follow him. Uh, Sherman doesn't. He moves out of Atlanta um, and is heading south into the interior of Georgia, and at first, they're kind of not quite sure where he's going. And this is part of the reason why men are shifted from Andersonville, too. They think that he's making for Andersonville. So they move everybody from Andersonville into Lawton. And around about kind of fairly late in the day, in terms of the campaign, um, kind of November 15th, 16th, um, that kind of middle part of November, it becomes pretty clear that he's, in fact, heading probably for Savannah and probably right for Lawton. Um, so they evacuate um, Lawton, all the POWs. The guards clearly know that this is going on for several days in advance. But the POWs are basically waking up, uh, woken up the night of the 22nd by drum rolls, uh, signal fires, and they're kind of rousted out all of their tents and all of their shelters, and they're lined up and they marched out to the railhead. And they're shipped from there to Savannah initially. And then from Savannah, they're either shipped um, to Florence uh, Stockade in South Carolina, another one of these kind of camps just like Lawton, or some of them are shipped south um, to Blackshear, Georgia, uh, where one of my grad students did a really nice project looking at the evidence for that. Um, and they're just kind of shunned around. The ones from Blackshear go towards to another temporary camp in Thomasville, Georgia. And some of those guys actually end up walking back into Andersonville on Christmas Eve, 1864. And it's still running, um, it's still in shape. And they talk about the, just, you can almost feel a kind of misery and depression rolling off the page. They talk about it being Christmas Eve and walking back into gates that they thought they'd seen the end of. Uh, yeah, it's a waking, it's a real waking nightmare. And I mean, the, the conditions these guys would have been being moved around in, I imagine, utterly horrendous. Obviously, the weather's getting worse. And, you know, it, it, you know, it puts to mind almost the sort of death marches that you get in the closing stages of the, of the Second World War. Were they as horrendous as I, I can imagine they were? It seems like it. Um, there's open box cars. Um, they're exposed to elements. They talk about it being a freezing rain on the 22nd. Um, there's references to just um, POWs that are frozen solid that die um, on the train that get offloaded um, and buried. It's yeah, I mean, it seems like they also have uh, again low rations, um, and this is one instance where it does seem like the guards are equally affected because there's talk, uh, there's mentions of guards and POWs here and there, 
sharing rations, uh, pooling stuff because none of them seem to have enough. This is kind of pure Confederacy and and uh, command structure in full panic mode. Um, and yeah, and again, uh, clothing wise, you know, they're if they're lucky, um, they've got trousers, a blouse, um, maybe a coat. Um, those seem to be shorts in short supply and clothing is, is in sh such short supply inside the stockade that they're going down to the kind of triage area where the dead are carried um, to a corner of the stockade so that the Confederates can come in and collect them up and rebury them or bury them outside the stockade and they're taking uh, coats off the dead, clothing off the dead. And, and do you find, I mean, I think part of your excellent social media uh, sites, you do find buttons, don't you, from, from clothing? So you know, obviously, you know, what kind of what people are wearing just through that sort of circumstantial evidence. Yeah, uh, we've got quite a lot of, there's um, an interesting story that's in the buttons. Uh, you get general service eagle buttons, um, and those are enlisted issue. They come in different sizes. You've got coat size and cuff size. Uh, so you can kind of work out if they're coming off um, a sack coat. Uh, shirts uh, weren't military issue. They were just whatever you could get or bring, and they tend to have um, kind of uh, glass crosser buttons. So there's kind of pretty good indications of uh, shirts and different type of clothing. Um, federal issue trousers um, had four hole iron buttons, uh, and we found uh, several of those. We've also found several um, adjustment buckles for the waistband of those trousers. So you can see that um, those are there, but you can also see kind of the some of the decay where, you know, stuff has fallen off these clothing. Um, buttons um, are interesting because quite a lot of the Confederate guards had almost a collector's mania for buttons. So you could trade um, buttons for tobacco um, and things for guards. Um, they would trade uh, for uh, peppers, uh, vegetables, rations. So buttons became kind of somewhat of a currency, which is interesting. And the buttons also tell a story of uh, some of the men that are in the camp. Uh, one of the interesting things that we have is Camp Walton is supposed to be just for enlisted men. Uh, there's another POW camp in Macon, Georgia, that is supposed to be for the officers. But we have... Um, we know that there were a few lieutenants that were in uh, Camp Walton, but we also have buttons um, that have uh, the general service eagle button is um, basically it looks like a U.S. eagle. It's got a shield on the breast. Um, the one for enlisted just has stripes in the shield, uh, but the one for officers has a solid I for infantry, a C if you were cavalry, A for artillery. So it's got a letter inside of that, and that's for identifying officers in the battlefield context. Um, and those are captains, uh, majors, company, great officers. We also have some cuff buttons that look like they are from field grade officers, um, or not field grade, uh, sorry, staff officers, uh, general staff officers. Um, those have a different shape. They've got stars around the rim of the button. And that's interesting because none of those guys are really supposed to be in law. They're supposed to be in Macon in the officer's uh, camp. So there's interesting stories behind that. Um, and that's also, what that, that that's really my that's really my the point is because I mean I think listeners might be thinking they're only there for what you know uh, just over a month archaeologically you know you're getting buttons what else do you finding it's you can imagine the stockade 
what you know what what are you finding what you expect to find and, and what what are you kind of looking for in the future what questions you need to ask and what are you hoping to find um what we're looking for um in the future is there's actually been really and this is one of the great things about camp law is it is a time capsule it is very much this kind of Stop it's a moment in time. It is one of these moments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, very yeah. rare in archaeology. Um, yeah. And it's fascinating because as far as we're aware, none of the land was ever really used for anything other than light farming and timber. Uh, there is CCC activity there, so during Conservation Corps when it gets turned into a state park and a fish hatchery, so that has impacted some of it. But it's not this kind of massive development that has really impacted the site. Um, so we've got really good preservation that tells us about foodways, the POWs, um, and we barely scratched the surface actually inside the stockade. Um, there's been a couple of seasons of excavation inside the stockade. Um, it picked up evidence of dense POW occupation, of currency, uh, medicinal aspect, um, dietary aspects, but it's very much just the kind of first initial brush in what essentially was a pretty small scale area, um, and the question. But you're doing that, you're doing a lot with it, though, aren't you? Because I've oh, seen again on your social media, you're 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 doing a great line in three D scanning and and printing. So you're using a lot of technology. Yeah, so we're bringing all that out. Uh, a big part of our camp lot is public archaeology. So that 3D scanning and 3D printing of those objects that we've got help with that. Um, there's a lot of those objects that really tell a story. Um, one of my favorite ones is uh, an improvised pipe uh, where it's a Kalen uh, clay pipe uh, manufactured in Glasgow, actually, uh, by Davidson's of Glasgow. And the bowl of the pipe has broken off. Um, so what somebody's done is they've taken a mini ball, uh, a lead uh, rifle bullet, and they've heated it up to be soft enough where they, they can mold it into a little bowl around the stem so they can keep smoke in their pipe. And you can actually feel, even in, in the 3D scan, it's high enough quality to where you can feel um, the teeth groove uh, from that individual POW's tooth where he gripped it in his mouth. And that kind of really drives home that that human element, uh, but also that need to self-medicate and probably also that need to, I mean, tobacco is an appetite suppressant. So in a situation where you don't have a lot of food, probably the more you smoke, the less you want food. And our kind of goal for the rest of the project is answer some of those questions like I mentioned. Um, look at uh, ethnicity in the stockade. Um, look at resistance in the stockade. How are they dealing with this being essentially under the thumb of this kind of all-seeing eye of Confederate authority that can see almost all their activity in the stockade? How do you deal with that? Um, to do things that you're not necessarily allowed to do. Alcohol is supposed to be prohibited, but we know they had to getting alcohol from some limited samples. Um, that's what part of this field school um, at Georgia Southern is focused on this spring is I've got a grad student who is really interested in anthropology and archeology span of shadow economies, of these kind of hidden economies that happen where they're not supposed to be. And that's one of the reasons why we're looking for the settlers' cabin, uh, because that will probably be one of those kind of nodes of economic activity. It's one of the few ways for stuff to kind of come into the camp. Um, and you can imagine with that kind of outpouring of materials that that then can set up a pretty good kind of nexus of shadow trading, um, trading illicit items that are not supposed to have, uh, alcohol, uh, 
medicine is restricted uh, tobacco as well and this kind of thriving black market trade that is necessary for survival but is also part of a way that POWs can resist this kind of confederate authority a way to kind of avoid that PTSD maudlin aspect because at least on some level they feel like they're taking action they're giving it back to the guards or giving it back to confederacy by doing something they're not supposed to do um, inside stockade so that's part of our our research interest coming up uh we're also interested um in the african-american presence at camp walton which is almost no evidence outside of historical sources um, we know that there were probably about 500 slaves impressed um, to build it. We also know that African-Americans worked as teamsters running wagons for the stockade. POWs mentioned them being the ones that are bringing the rations in. Um, the Confederate officers seem to have had uh, enslaved servants that were, well, taking care of their officer things and keeping them in the style they were accustomed to. Uh, but archaeologically, those have largely been absent. Uh, we may have gotten a little piece of it in field work that we did in 2020 um, that was funded by an American Battlefield Protection Program grant, uh, where we were looking at a battle that occurred after the camp was abandoned uh, around uh, the train depot known as Lawton Station. And some of the metal protecting survey and excavations there uh, produced what looked like um, a host of structures, probably open structures, uh, many probably dealing uh, with metal production, um, horse care, donkey care, uh, mule care, things of that nature. But some of the stuff that came out of there seems like it could possibly be African-American in nature. There's a blue glass bead that we have um, that's blue is a significant color in uh, West African traditions and it's carried over to the enslaved population. There's a little piece of pipe that looks like it might be similar to uh, a pipe that was found at a freed African-American settlement in Augusta, Georgia, just literally right up the railroad. Um, that is a figural pipe of Nebuchadnezzar um, that was produced right after excavations um, in kind of Babylon and this kind of archaeological proof of the Bible seems to have been kind of taken up pretty strongly uh, within um, African-American culture as with that whole kind of identification between enslaved African-Americans and the enslaved Israelites. That's, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, it, you know, if, if anything good comes out of this, if you're able to tell these stories that have been completely lost and deliberately suppressed, at the time that's you know over and above the the the, the archaeology you've described so far that that's got to be something that's just so valuable and uh, yeah i think we'd love to hear in future um uh, an update o o on on this and i know you do work in blockade runners obviously you know we are very much complicit uh in in western europe in uh, enabling this war to run for as long as it did um, but hopefully we'll maybe get you back in future to do that because I know you've done some really interesting research on that and visiting Glasgow for, for that as well. But just, just to finish, I mean, I know you have lots of partners and, and, and funders and people that you'd like to thank. So if you could just um, uh, just give us a few words on that and then we'll, we'll wrap up and just thank you very much because it's absolutely fascinating. Yeah. So uh, over to you, Ryan. Thanks again. Absolutely. Yeah. 
so the Camp Lawton project has really been made possible with uh, a partnership between Georgia Southern University, uh, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, who owns uh, the Bogan Fish Hatchery, where the majority of the POW occupation seems to be, um, and uh, Georgia uh, Department of Natural Resources that owns the other half of the prisoner stockade and where the fort and the guard barracks sit on inside Magnolia Springs State Park. Um, and other other funders, um, we managed to get uh, quite a lot of interesting research done on skirmishes associated with Sherman's March to Sea and battles around Camp Lawton associated with Sherman's March to Sea. And that was funded by a National Park Service American Battlefield Protection Program grant. Um, generously funded um and yeah i mean the rest of the things are um, the community that's kind of supported a lot of this research um and also i'm thinking the, the students i mean these projects are run as as field schools they're supposed to professionally train um, our students to go out into archaeology uh, and work in commercial cultural resource management um so it wouldn't have been possible without um dozens and dozens of dedicated undergraduate and graduate students who have sweated and at this point uh fault gators not literally fault gators um I've... that's absolutely clear dr mcnaught has been very good on uh, health and safety and no one has been attacked or even got very close to an alligator um yeah but no, I mean, this field work is uh, it's made possible by them. Uh, they've done, uh, grad students have done a lot of um, co-authored research. Uh, one of my papers is co-authored with a grad student um, who did a lot of work and wrote, uh, Emily Jones, and wrote a pretty incredible thesis on um, health and wellness in Camp Walton, looking at all these kind of ways to alleviate sickness and illness. Um, yeah. Cool. I mean, yeah, I know. I, yeah, that, that just gives everybody, I think, an insight into how much work goes into an archaeological project, whether whether by university or, or commercial. So, I think that's hopefully given our listeners um, a, a real view of, of of the world we we work in. And it just remains for me to say uh, to to one of my great friends, thank you so much for your for your time. And genuinely, I was just listening to it uh, as a fascinated listener, and I hope. Our listeners enjoy it just just as much so uh thank you dr ryan k mcnutt and uh we'll give out all the links to all your various websites and the georgia southern page on this as well so thank you very Absolutely. much ryan thanks for having me enjoyed it well i hope you found that as fascinating as, as we obviously did when we we were recording it um and it you know being able to tell the story of that enslaved community um ryan discussing and the second half of the podcast there is very important and also the work that they're doing in outreach to let people know and particularly fascinating for me was the the work that they're doing on 3d scanning and printing of objects yeah. that they're pulling from the ground yeah so it was an incredible interview and if you enjoyed that uh, you might enjoy some of our other podcasts so make sure you go back to our archives uh, hit that follow button hit that subscribe button uh, wherever you're listening to your podcast we are available please if you enjoyed it leave us a review leave us a rating that's how other people find out about this podcast follow us on our social medias and if you know anybody who'd enjoy the podcast maybe send it on to them share it with them help us grow so that you can grow our community can grow together thank you very much thank you Thank <laughs> you.